This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Ramya. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI's on-air community, and everyone's invited. Well, it's a nice start to a nice show, and of course, two hours of Kelly and Ramya is nice for everybody. Ramya Amadin, Kelly McDonald, we're here with you. Hello, Kels. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Hope you're doing all right today for a Tuesday. Yes, doing fantastically for a Tuesday. And I Mm -hmm. wanted to uh, find out about weighted blankets with you. So I've had one experience with one weighted blanket. Now, it, it was, yes, it was my brother's weighted blanket. I was staying over at my mom's house. He said, trust me, try it. It's awesome. Um, no, it wasn't. I had the opposite experience. I, <laughs> what was the weight of his, though? It was Was it like 5, 7, and 12, I believe? I think this was probably closer to 7. Definitely not 5. But it was heavy, seriously. And the thing is, I've told you in the past, I don't like sleeping with socks on. I don't like sleeping with long pants on. Like, I just get really hot. Even if it's cold, going to sleep, wake up in the middle of the night and sweat. So you can only imagine going to sleep with this weighted blanket on, waking up feeling absolutely suffocated. Uh, I was drenched in sweat, and I thought, oh, my (laughs) God, why do people do this to themselves? Have you had a weighted blanket experience? No, no, I've never, I never slept with one. Never, you know, got one to 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 even to try. It's not something I think I would like because of sort of some of the things you said about I, it's blankets and things like that. I find heavy enough. I would get probably hot, but it just would be too much for me. Um, and I don't think we realize, like when you're talking five, seven, twelve pounds. Oh I God, think are the weights that these things can be? I think twelve. I might. I mean, be even five so pounds. Me. Oh, yeah. Well, when you think about the weight of whatever you've got now and then have these weights to anchor it down and anchor you down, it it doesn't sound like a lot. But I also know some people really swear by them for comfort. Comfort and I think, well, yeah, exactly. Definitely, I I can tell why it would be comfortable. I don't have the science behind it and really no judgment for people who do. But I guess my first commentary was kind of judgmental. But the thing is, if you get hot... Like, my my body temperature changes so drastically from when I'm going to sleep to the middle of the night. And uh, I think for me, like, it was just such a drastic shift in how hot I could get. And as you said, it would help with the comfort, but also the warming factor, right? Like, if you really do get cold, like, I think for my father, this would be a brilliant idea because he's just always cold. Um, but for someone who your temperature regulates more naturally or you can come back from being super cold mm, probably not great have you ever tried Your the brother electric actually use it yeah oh this is okay. his normal in the winter huh. Huh. Um, electric what electric blankets uh yes yes those i don't mind but i you know would, you would probably go out and buy one yeah i don't Automatica. know if i'm like i'd figure that out you can change the temperature and mm. stuff like that so i don't know i i would not be the greatest at i'd figure i'd end up hey help i'm hot you know i'd feel, <laughs> yeah. that's the way i'd feel yeah. and even at, even at minus 20 degrees uh, even if i was outside with minus 20 degrees god yeah so just let's just crank up the acs i mean the ACs. i'm a bit of a the baby heaters. that way about those mm, things but same. i i fell in that two years ago and as a kid my parents got me a um water bit and i'd crank the heat up to like 28 degrees celsius Whoa. and still have the air conditioner on in the summertime yet so to it's kind sleep of a, in a water bed 
I'm very curious now. Can we go sleep on waterbeds like at uh, bed furniture stores? Uh, they'd kick you off, but some of them will let you, mm. you know, try things out, especially if they try think it. it's a cha-ching deal for them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll make it seem like it is. Let's see what's coming up on today's show. Kelly and Remia, uh, we are talking about indigestion with Francis Wong on our wellness segment. What is it and how do we get out of it? This is an interesting conversation, ladies and gentlemen. You hear a lot about it in the news. Community reporter Mark Workman joins us live from Dubai. It'll be about midnight by the time we speak to, to Mark. We're going to be chatting about the United Nations Climate Change Conference, which is he's attending and so many others are. With, there'll be so much to talk about. We have another Collections and Hobbies segment this month with Bryce Parker. He's collecting jerseys. He's actually got a couple different sports going, including his own, which is goalball. So we'll talk to him about that later on in Hour 2. Uh, let's talk a little bit about our teeth and dental care. NDP health critic Don Davies says the dental care program announced yesterday, that's the uh, 11th of December, builds on the legacy of the party's visionary first reader, Tommy Douglas, who laid the foundation for universal health care over half a century ago. Davies points out that Douglas also worked with the Liberal government of the day to get that program off the ground. In this minority parliament, New Democrats have once again worked constructively to achieve another health care breakthrough. By working in cooperative partnership with our Liberal colleagues, New Democrats have helped secure dental care for 9 million Canadians. It's no exaggeration to say that this is the biggest expansion of public health care in Canada in many generations. Uh, Davies also says this groundbreaking program will help millions of Canadians access the kind of primary health care that most of us take for granted. Absolutely true. And Kells, we know this. We know with dental specifically, uh, you can to toss other comparisons in here, uh, but dental specifically, it is so rough in Canada. And I say in Canada because we do have access to other dental care provincially, mm -hmm. right? And uh, yeah. Or other health care, sorry, provincially. So we know what it's like to have things covered so when we do that comparison of the spectrum of this is covered that's covered at least some of this is covered and then we go to dental and it's an absolute chaos with uh, how expensive things can be how unexpected expenses can be and so when the um, talk of this health care program this dental care program started coming out it was very exciting to think okay yeah there is a huge portion of the population that will benefit from anything mm. at all with dental too many dangerous things if you don't have your teeth in the line and that goes down to heart issues or, or or procedures you can't have because they can't be messing around if you've got poor teeth. It's something that is so rampant because of the system and stuff like that in some parts of the world. We're fortunate enough not to have to worry as much, but we do may, need to make sure people don't fall through the cracks. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, we're going to take a break and come back with Ask a Veterinarian. This is a Tuesday weekly conversation with Dr. Danielle Johnkind, and we're talking about quirky physical traits in our pets and whether or not they can be harmful. We'll be right back. Don't miss a minute. Kelly and Ramya will be right back. Welcome back and hang out with us here on Kelly and Ramya as we take you through two hours of programming. Many conversations of all of our interests are to come in a variety of the sorts as well. Starting with, right now, 
our Ask a Vet conversation with Dr. Danielle Johnkind. Whether they provide us with companionship and income, food, or serve a critical role in the ecosystems that support us, animals are vital to human health. Have fun with us as we learn about animal-related topics and about the amazing bond we share with our animal friends. Danielle, we're talking about our pets, their personalities, and, and their physical traits today. So if you have pets, you know that they often have very big personalities. And like us, Uniqueness. they are. Yeah, they are. And they're very individual. Some of them even have quirky physical traits, like extra toes that only add to that uniqueness. And we want to talk about some of these traits. And also, on a more serious note, if they can be harmful for our pets. Uh, mm. And these come in context like adopting pets and other ways. So that's what we're going to talk about with you today, Danielle. Are the traits that we're talking about today things that randomly pop up in the pet population? Oh, well, some of them are, you know, but a lot of them are potentially related to the effects that domestication and human intervention have had on pets. So, of course, you know, we humans, we love novelty. And when something shows up on the extreme end of a spectrum, we're sometimes a bit like kids in a candy store, you know, we got to have it, right? So um, when you look at things like how popular and big, like, for example, the grumpy cat phenomenon became, you know, you, you get the idea of what I'm trying to stay here. I mean, they're <laughs> countless memes, posters, t-shirts, and other grumpy cat merchandise out there, all because this kitty was born with features that resemble a grumpy human facial expression, right? Mm. And, you know, breeds of dogs and cats um, may have begun in much the same way, you know. Um, we wanted to pass certain traits down to the next generations reliably, so humans orchestrated these animal pairings to make that happen. And, of course, sometimes those traits were selected on function, you know, for example, maybe like breeding terrier smaller so they could hunt rats or instilling herding instincts into the herding breeds. Um, sometimes they were based on more extreme characteristics, though, like we see in like the toy breeds and giant breed dogs, for example. And, you know, sometimes we have these quirky physical characteristics in our pets that have benefits and others that, you know, can potentially cause problems. And, of course, there are some that don't affect our pets much one way or the other, but they just kind of make them cuter and that much more endearing. <laughs> <laughs> so awesome, though. And it's so I, I love that. And I know some people will say, oh, cats have more of those personalities, dogs. It's, it's an interesting discussion, an interesting debate that I love um, hearing people have. Okay, let's dive into the list that you have for us. Okay, so maybe we'll start with some of the quirky and more benign ones. So on to the first. Mm. Um, I, I used to work in an area where there was a high population of feral cats with extra toes. And, oh. you know, as a result, you know, a lot of the kittens and cats I would see would come in with these extra toes and most commonly on their front feet. Um, some had one or two extra toes on each foot, but I remember seeing a few who had even more than that, you know, almost to the point of doubling their foot size. And of wow. course, the medical, yeah, the, the medical term for having extra toes is called polydactyly. Um, and I have to say that out of all the quirky anatomy I sometimes see, polydactyly is my favorite. I mean, <laughs> these are some seriously cute paws we're talking about here. You know, these, these kitties, they have these huge huge big mitts and you know for somebody like me who thinks that toe pads are the sweetest things nature ever made for a foot you know a, a polydactyly kitty might just turn out to be the highlight of my day 
Oh, so wow. adorable. And these are just cats, right? We're not even talking about dogs with extra toes. Not yet. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. All right. Yeah. Just want to keep up but with the medical ease. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, you know, for the most part, um, polydactyly doesn't seem to cause much grief for the kitty either with one sort of caveat. You know, you, you do have to keep an eye on their nails if you have one of these kitties. And not only do they have extra nails to trim, but some of these cats have nails growing in between the toes too and I can tell you from personal experience those are hard to get at when you want to trim them and of course the other thing you might want to watch for is um, some signs of arthritis as the kitty gets older Um, Mm. the structure of the foot of course can potentially affect how the kitty bears weight and how it walks um, which might lead to more wear and tear in bones and joints over time I don't think this has really been studied in polydactyly cats I would just kind of keep an eye out for it though And of course, that's not even a for sure outcome. Um, But as an aside, you know, some of my favorite names have come from these polydactyly kitties like Mittens, um, (laughs) Snowshoes, Slugger, I assume a (laughs) reference to Boxing Mitts, and my favorite was Monster Paws. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you do wonder about the distribution of the the weight and the walk and the gait. I, I mean, I guess one could, you know, put up battles and study that kind of avenue of it. But like you, I think that's kind of cool. And long as there's no discomfort and, you know, the cat doesn't know, oh, man, what's wrong with you? How come you only have that many and I got one more? Huh? (laughs) <laughs> if they if we could hear them talk. Yep, yep, yep. That would be cool. <clears throat> now, so the the on next one of on to dogs. So, like you were saying, extra toes. So, um, dogs have their own version of polydaxy, but it most often affects the back feet, not the front. Um, dogs and cats normally have five toes on each front foot and four on each back foot. Um, and some dogs have extra toes on the back legs. And these are usually on the inside of the leg, just above the foot. And most people call these dew claws, you know. So there are some breeds of dogs, like the Great Pyrenees, for example, Um the presence of dew claws is actually part of the breed standard. So oh. they get dogged marks if they don't have them, right? Mm. Um, dew claws are rarely, if ever, low enough to bear any weight on. Um, in some dogs, they're, you know, little more than just kind of like a vestigial nail growing out of the skin. But in others, they actually have fully formed toes with bones in them and toe pads and everything. Um, they don't seem to cause any health concerns for the dogs that have them either. Um, a lot of people, though, will request having them removed, you know, worried that oh. they'll get caught on things more easily. And personally, I think that's kind of funny to me because, you know, nobody ever asks about removing extra toes in cats, but on dogs, it seems to be a big thing. <laughs> Is it because they're going wow. out more? Like, I wonder what that fear comes from. I don't know. I get a lot of comments about, well, what if it gets caught in a blanket and rips the nail yeah. off, oh. you know? And I guess I could see if if you had a dog who was running through deep snow, you might be worried that the leg would go through the snow and scrape the, right. the extra toe on the inside of the leg. But, um, you know, for just average sort of stuff, you know, um, I get a lot of requests about, should we take those off, you know? <laughs> okay. All right. Well, h- how about your next item here? This is interesting. The kink. Yes, kinked tails, you know. So another thing I see a lot are these sort of kinks in tails where you think a tail mm-hmm. should be straight, but then it kind of takes a zig or a zag. Oh, really? <laughs> and of course, 
Yeah. It's a question yeah, mark. Yeah. It's a question mark. That's all. <laughs> well, and and my my little Eve often has a question mark tail, but just because she her tail isn't abnormal, she just holds it in that shape yeah, a lot yeah. of the time. The top is flopped over, but um, sometimes, well. of course pets are born with a kink tail but it can also happen from some kind of traumatic accident that damages the tail which then doesn't heal straight and of course like the extra toes you know the lack of a perfectly straight tail doesn't usually cause any problems for the pet um though it does lead to some pre pretty creative pet names like lightning or zigzag <laughs> <laughs> so when you feel it you can feel the tailbone kind of uh, bend, I guess. Make a turn, right? Make a turn. Yeah. A permanent turn, though. A permanent turn. A permanent turn, and you know, if it's a fluffy pet with a fluffy tail, like it, it's actually not easy to see it. Right. You right. know, um, unless you have one of those breeds with the um, the really short hair, like Chihuahua or a Boxer. Most Boxers still have dog tails. Hopefully, that will change. But right. um, you know, there are definitely um, dogs with those short little tails that, you know, the short hair on the tail that you can actually see the the, the, the kink. kink in it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about hair and coat. I think this is going to be a, a long one. <laughs> well, you know, there have been tons of breeds of all kinds of pets that have come out of genetic changes that result in unusual hair coats. So, of course, all kinds of different animals have breeds with curly coats. Um, so we have breed dog breeds like poodles and curly coated retrievers, um, the Rex cats. Um, and there's even a breed of horses called the Bashkir curly. Um, mm. I've actually seen a couple of these and they're very unusual looking, you know, um, poodle coats on horses. It's, that, it's kind of unusual. Wow. Range. Yeah. Yep. And there are also rats, mice and rabbits with curly coats as well. Oh my God. And, yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't believe it's it. A but trend. It's true. <laughs> It's a trend. It's a style they, is what it is, right? Look what's in. <laughs> well, another quirky coat trait, of course, are the hairless breeds, you know? So we yes. have the right. Chinese crested dog. We have sphinx cats and, you know, the skinny pigs, which are actually hairless guinea pigs. I don't know who came up with that name, but I laugh every time Pretty I funny, hear it. Yeah. Yep. And, of course, some animals with unusual coats don't seem to have problems with them. Um, though, of course, some breeds like poodles need a lot of grooming to prevent their coats from getting matted and dirty. But other animals aren't so lucky, you know, and they have a higher incidence of skin problems. So in mm -hmm. some cases, these mutations can also predispose the pet to skin issues. So, you know, if you have one of these pets and your pet has skin issues, you know, check with your vet about managing those. Um, with hairless pets, of course, you also have to be a lot more mindful of the cold and the burning hot sun. Um, so you often need to cover them up to protect them. You know, I know whenever I'm examining one, I always worry about having those icy cold fingers. You know, my oh. kids call them doctor hands. Right, <laughs> when I'm yeah. going to examine hairless pets. <laughs> oh, man. Your kids are so considerate, Danielle. They, they're so yeah. used to it. Uh, Danielle, you want to get flat face? We have just about a minute and a half. Okay. So, of course, one of the best-known examples of taking an unusual trait to an extreme are the flat-faced breeds, you know. So in cats, those are breeds like the Persians and Himalayans. And in dogs, you know, we see a bit of a range of severity in how fat 
or how flat the face is between breeds. So we have the old English bulldogs and pugs, which are kind of on the extreme end, you know. Well, some of the smaller breeds like the Cavalier, King Charles, Spaniels, and the Shih Tzus, you know, they have a bit of a longer nose compared to a pug by comparison. And of course, things like the Boxer are somewhere in between those two. And unlike some of the other quirks we talked about, you know, having the flat face can potentially be detrimental to a pet's quality of life. So yeah. these pets sometimes have a lot of difficulty getting air in and out, especially in hot, humid weather. And that can be stressful, you know. Um, they have a tendency to overheat easily too. So you have to be mindful of that when you're exercising them or even if they're just laying around in the summertime. And occasionally they even need surgery to kind of open up the nostrils and remove excess tissue at the back of the palate um, to improve airflow and cooling ability if they're really severely affected. And of course, another consideration is, is that the face, as the face flattens, the shape of the nose and the jaws changes, you know, and that creates less room for teeth and that can lead to dental problems. So you might need to be more diligent about brushing the teeth. And um, I can tell you, they have a lot of lips to move out of the way to get at those teeth. So oh. good luck. It's a little harder. <laughs> oh my. Yeah, it, it's interesting because like you said at the beginning, right, it's a spectrum of things that are quirky and kind of cute and then there's the curly trend. Uh, but then there's other things that are more like you have to be warned about health conditions that may arise from these uh, quirks or types of breeds, I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. And yeah, thank you. This is very interesting and fun. You're welcome. I All hope right. it was. Yeah, we try. Was, we're going to go find um, uh, how AI describes these horses with poodle hair on them, and we'll be back with that description later. <laughs> Thank you so much. This, this is called okay. Rumya Entertainment, Danielle. I love That's it. Just, just, yeah. How many pets can we t and rodents can we turn curly? All right. Later, Danielle. <laughs> Take care. Dr. Danielle Johnkind joins us on Tuesdays for Ask a Veterinarian with weekly conversations about our four-legged friends. After the break, what is indigestion? How can we treat it? And are we prone to it during the holidays? Most probably, yes. Uh, we're going to talk about it with wellness contributor Francis Wong on Kelly and Ramia. Stick around and learn something new. Kelly and Ramya return with more in a moment. You know, for all the dogs and cats, uh, at least just those two, that I've run into over my life, Kells, I don't think I've met any with extra toes. Have you? Uh, not to my knowledge, but I'm not really dropping onto my knees. And one, two, three. Yeah. But don't you think but it'd be like a quirky so. piece I mean, of thing people would share for conversation? No, but they get used to it, right? Unless I yeah, happen to be true. there when it was discovered. Hey, let's talk. Hey, look at the extra toe. And that was the new thing they liked. Here, here, shake paw with them. Uh, see, extra toe. Yeah, I don't even think you'd necessarily notice unless somebody points no, it I out. No, I don't think so. People aren't really counting they, toes. So you stepped on that sixth toe and it's... <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. Or then they're wearing booties, but it only accommodates, you know, yes. minus one toe. But, but I was thinking about that with that nail thing because dogs are drop, jumping around and yes, stuff like that yes. and sliding. Mm -hmm. I think a little more i mean cats run certainly but do they slide as much you know like they're sliding into home base true they yeah, do have a I better vertical they're more accurate yeah. they're jumping yes for sure but they, and then climbing up and snapping uh-oh so I, I guess i can understand the concerns folks let's chat about the world of health 
and Wellness with Francis Wong. Hello, I'm Francis Wong, and I invite you to join me as we explore topics of health and wellness so that you can make the best choices for you to live an informed and radiant life. What a discovery, Francis. Ah, that time of the year where it's so easy to overindulge and what comes often with overeating, aside from a lot of moaning and groaning, can be indigestion, heartburn, one of those fun things. And people often seem to use the term heartburn and acid reflux interchangeably. So today we're going to talk about some of those specifics with you and ways we can minimize it happening to us using terms interchangeably. Um, question here, why don't we start as the best place to start with the basics on this? What yeah, is so indigestion? So people actually use acid reflux, indigestion, heartburn, anger interchangeably. And I thought it would be interesting to do a deeper dive to clear up any lingering confusion over mm -hmm. these terms. Right. So, you know, sometimes when you eat something and it just doesn't go down well or set well in your stomach, you can get a combination of symptoms ranging from pain in your abdomen and chest to feelings of bloating, burping, nausea, or feeling too full after eating. Well, that's indigestion. And like dementia, it's an umbrella term. So it's not one specific symptom, but a group mm. of them. You might also hear someone use the technical term of dyspepsia and more generally an upset stomach and both also refer to indigestion. So let me ask you to take a guess as to how common indigestion is. And I'll give you a hint. It's pretty common. Hey, I was going to say, and I, I always over guess so. with these things, but I'm going to say like 70% of us. I'll go, I'll go 80% because a lot of Wait, us are we supposed we to guess percentile? Percent is fine. Oh. All right. Yeah. I'd say 80% I'd say actually... of us. Okay, so you guys are both like overestimating by a lot. <laughs> it's you. actually one in four people well, in the U.S. It's so. pretty common. Okay. Yeah, it is pretty common. Yeah, I think okay. it's pretty common. I guess. <laughs> I, I guess so, I look at it because so many people, we gulp down stuff. And yeah, get whatever, we just like you said, and that's so where, much. Well, it, or just too quickly. Yeah, that's And again, that comes into our confusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess when you think about it, it is really easy to overeat. Uh, we've got an abundance of food around us. If you can overlook the soaring prices of groceries, and we've got all these food delivery apps ready to satisfy any cravings that we have at a moment's notice. So it's really not that surprising that mm. more people don't get it. So doctors who see patients with indigestion complaints diagnose about three out of four with functional dyspepsia, which is chronic indigestion without a health problem or digestive tract issues such as a peptic ulcer disease or gastritis. So again, indigestion is not a disease, but can point to certain digestive tract diseases or conditions. And I, what I think is important to note is that indigestion is not always related to eating. Oh, interesting. Mm. Okay, so you've given us the overview of what indigestion encompasses. How about acid reflux? How does it differ from heartburn, and or is it the same? Okay, so now these are very similar terms, but there is a difference. So acid reflux is what happens when our esophagus muscles are weak. When we swallow um, food or liquids, the lower esoph esophageal sphincter at the bottom of the esophagus opens up to allow food to pass through. It's supposed to be closed otherwise. 
This becomes a problem if that valve does not close back all the way. So what happens, as you can guess, is that food, acid, and digestive juices flow backwards up the esophagus. Oh, and this process itself is known as acid reflux. And then heartburn is a symptom of acid reflux. And that is where someone may be feeling that painful burning sensation in the chest or throat caused by stomach acid traveling up towards the throat. And now there's also something called GERD, which stands for gastroesophageal uh, reflux disease. And it is when the contents of your stomach come up through the esophagus, so very much acid reflux, but it's also often paired with regurgitation. So GERD is more of a sustained or chronic state of reflux and occurs two or more times a week. And you might be wondering if there's anything we can do physically about this. And I'm here to tell you that you are in luck. So unfortunately, heartburn worsens as we get older because our muscles weaken as we age. And according to one doctor, muscle mass decreases by 8% per decade after the age of 30. That works out to almost 1% a year. And that's a good enough reason in my books to start or keep up any exercise routine. There are two main muscle groups that separate the stomach acid in our stomach from our esophagus. And these are the lower esophageal sphincter or the LES muscles that I mentioned earlier and our diaphragm. Now, we cannot control the sphincter muscles since these are involuntary, but just like we can do Kegel exercises to train our pelvic floor, there are actually diaphragmatic breathing exercises Ah, that you can do to strengthen your diaphragm. The International Foundation for Gastrointestinal Disorders believes that if your diaphragm isn't strong enough, it can keep these LES muscles from functioning optimally. Singers and theater dogs rejoice. Yep. Oh, that's the thing, get tightening, get uh, doing those exercises. Can you talk a little bit about the aphromatic breathing and how someone can practice this? Yeah, I love this question, Kelly, because diaphragmatic breathing is also called deep breathing mm. or belly breathing, which is something that we practice in yoga. Yep. And it's pretty simple um, that you can do almost anywhere. So you can find a place to sit and allow your eyes to close. And then as you breathe, you notice your belly expanding. And the idea is that we are not just breathing into the upper part of our chest. It's full body breathing. Right. So you breathe in slowly through your nose, taking a few seconds, say like up to four to complete that inhale. Then you hold the breath for a couple of seconds before you release the breath through a longer exhale, say six seconds. And then the exhale can be through the nose or the mouth. And you want to pay attention to your belly as it's deflating. And then you repeat the cycle starting with a couple minutes every day and then work your way up to 15 minutes. This practice not only helps strengthen your diaphragm, but you may notice yourself feeling a lot calmer after the practice as well. Yes. I bet. Wow, and I bet. When we were like consciously teaching people how to do belly breathing, it's like we're used to our shoulders going up and down, but you want your belly to be uh, expanding and contracting instead, right? Like kind of to compare. So you yes. mentioned... Uh, earlier, you left us on a bit of a cliffhanger saying that indigestion not is not always related to eating. What are some of the other reasons why we might get indigestion? And I'm a little bit scared to know. <laughs> you don't need to worry too much. Okay. Um, so food and drink are definitely ca- possible causes of indigestion, especially if you're drinking too many alcoholic beverages or caffeinated drinks or even carbonated drinks, which we also know now is not great for our teeth. And you can get indigestion if you're eating spicy, fatty, or greasy foods, or if you're eating too fast, or as I mentioned, it is the holiday season. So if you're eating too much foods or foods that contain a lot of acid, hello, acid reflux, 
like tomatoes. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, coffee and chocolate can also be triggers, but non-food and drink issues that can cause indigestion include stress. So is that really a surprise? We've talked about that whole gut connection with the brain last time, and we want to work on lowering or managing our stress levels for many reasons, including this one. Other causes of indigestion, including smoke, smoking, um, include smoking or even certain medications. Many people, um, yeah. Mm. Okay, that's so really that's a lot of. Friend. Oh my gosh, a lot to take in there, but a lot of different places and ways. Like I, I think right off the bat, eating yeah. fast coffee, of course, because I love my coffee. But there's so many things you can see there. I mean, I mean, I've even noticed. Oh, I like you know food with garlic. Right. If I have meat with garlic, but if I have just to get to a certain point, I start getting the hiccups mm. and no, uh oh, whether you're eating too fast or something. Many people will reach for Tums or Rolaids to treat it. Are there any natural remedies we can use? Yes. So for people who prefer not to take or rely on over-the-counter medicine or to avoid side effects of medication, there are some things that you've probably already got lying around at home that you can try first. Peppermint oil and leaves are shown to relieve gas, bloating, and indigestion. So peppermint tea is a nice drink to have after a meal. And chamomile teal is also good for um, re relaxing and aiding indigestion. And fennel seeds. If you've ever been to an Indian restaurant, you'll notice that they have these little dishes of sugar-coated fennel seeds. This is often used not only as a palate cleanser and to freshen your breath, but it's also to help with the digestion at the end of your meal. And then two other home remedies I'll talk about. One is apple cider vinegar. This can be uh, diluted mm -hmm. in a little bit of water and taken. And people have reported that it can help relieve acid reflux symptoms. The other home remedy is not even only um, cheap, but easier than going out and buying Tums, and that is baking soda. The sodium bicarbonate in baking soda neutralizes stomach acid, and that can temporarily relieve symptoms of acid reflux. For adults, you can take half a teaspoon in four ounces of water, and this can be repeated in two hours. Again, this is only meant to provide short-term relief, and it's not a long-term solution. If you're suffering from indigestion on a chronic basis, then it's definitely recommended that you go and seek out your family doctor just to rule out any other possible causes. But for a happy gut and hopefully minimal indigestion, you're now armed with how to approach the holiday festivities and meals. Mm. And wow. I guess if so you're taking, yeah, definitely. And I guess if you're taking any of the over-counter stuff regularly enough, you should probably think of shifting over to some of the home remedies anyway, right, Francis? Like once in a while, or if you're if facing symptoms very irregularly, that's one thing. But if you're, if you know that these are things that you're living with, or you know that uh, food's affecting you in these ways, uh, yeah, it's still an afterthought, but nonetheless, natural. Yes, um, it is. If you are finding yourself taking it or having to rely on these more than twice a week and right. it's on a regular basis, then that's definitely a time to go and get that checked out. That's not really normal for anyone to be having to rely on it. And you don't want well, to have to rely on that anyway. And especially, again, some of these things you're saying, I sit here and think, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because we all talk about, oh, yeah, I used to really be able to tolerate that. And right. it's some of that exercise, breathing, working on that, a little bit of the baking soda for the temporary. I remember that being a huge thing. I think when they, in this, when I was a kid, I think that was one of the marketing things they would say when selling baking soda, not just put it in your fridge to eat up odors, but if you have a sick stomach, you know, it was just one of those mm -mm. things that the old remedies, but when you think 
think about as time goes on at that 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 eight percent a decade really comes true for the things you you know say to people yeah I used to eat those hot spicy wings but oh I no 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 I was just can't, thinking can't the same thing yeah like yeah. the muscles and it being you know physiologically explained this way Francis makes a huge difference because exactly you think like oh I can't tolerate what I used to anymore but it makes perfect sense if we're losing I, I never used to hic- hiccup yeah never I mean like Francis, I'm talking six, seven times a year, and that was moons ago. But and only in the last five, six. Oh, gee, I hiccup a little more than I used to. So I, this is just wonderful to know all this. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Francis Wong joining us on the program. We talk every two weeks with Francis opposite our nutrition segment with Julia Carantis, and we talk health and wellness on the program. We're learning about a cool initiative. There's one spot in Calgary, one in Toronto. It's called the Lil E Coffee Cafe, and it's an inclusive cafe that offers meaningful employment to people with cognitive disabilities. So we got two guests coming up that are going to tell us all about this place. We'll be right back. It's Kelly and Ramya. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's Kelly and Ramia on a Tuesday afternoon here. If you're listening live on AMI-tv, of course, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time. And we want to feature some fantastic initiatives today on the show, starting with this one. It's called Lil E Cafe. That's L-I-L space E Coffee Cafe. And this is a spot um, where it's an inclusive cafe, sorry, where with two locations, one in Calgary, one in Toronto, and the cafe hires employment employees with cognitive disabilities, and this, of course, leads to meaningful employment, or at least that is the mission behind the initiative. So we have two guests who are here to tell us more about this cafe. Caitlin Rutherford is the general manager manager at Lily Cafe in Toronto, and Nicole Monez is employee at the one in Toronto also. So welcome to both of you. Thanks for coming on, Kelly and Ramia. Thanks for having us. So I have a a couple questions, or we'll um, get to know Lily Cafe and both of your experiences. Caitlin, can you describe the cafe for us a little more so we can get an idea of the vibe and the atmosphere? Sure. Um, So the intention of the place was to be somewhere really fun to work, uh, somewhere where everyone one felt welcome. Uh, there's bright colors um, and bright lights, uh, big windows, um, and it's just a place where everyone feels welcome and uh, can hang out as long as they like. That's amazing. I love the bright windows, the colors, and maybe you can touch on that a little bit more and the way that it makes customers and employees feel. But what would you say when asked the question, what makes this place so special? Hmm. That's actually a hard question to answer because there are a lot of things, in my opinion. Um, I think well, the I'm greedy. Thing... I'll take more than one. <laughs> sure. sure. What makes this place special? I think the biggest thing is that we're unique compared to other uh, inclusive hiring or job training um, uh, places. We not only provide job training and life skills to our employees, um, we're also paying our employees at the same time. Um, and I think that that's a major difference than a lot of other job training places, uh, especially in the city. 
Um, so our hiring process was just like any other job. We had people apply, we interviewed, and then successful candidates were hired and trained up um, and work in a fully customer-facing environment um, with the two of us managing. I have another manager that works with me, Serena. Um, and we not only manage the store, but we provide all of the coaching and training, the sort of extra care their employees might need on an individual basis. Fantastic. Wow. Uh, Kayla, how long? Give, give us an idea of the history of the cafe. When did things kind of start and the focus that that, the, that that you have? Sure. So in Calgary, if that's what you mean, uh, in Calgary, they opened in 2021. Um, and it was the brainchild of the owner, Paul Constance. Uh, he had a daughter, has a daughter, Ella, who was born with Down syndrome. She's six now uh and that's who little e is little ella uh and he wanted to create a space for her and people like her um because the the employment rate amongst people with intellectual and developmental disabilities uh is devastatingly low so mm -hmm. um so he having never owned a coffee shop before talked to as many people as he could and um you know, through a lot of hard work and perseverance, he opened it up uh, kind of in the depth of COVID um, to great success. And so um, they've been open for two and a half years now, and we've been open for three months, and uh, we've had some lovely reception here as well. And that is so nice to hear. And I want to ask you, Nicole, uh, what you do at Lily Ca Coffee Cafe, I don't know why I cannot roll this off the tongue, but uh, what do you do and what do you enjoy doing? What I do is I make coffee, I give uh, the sweets that people want, and I also do a little cleaning here and there. And I love doing is the coffees for people, make them happy. Very nice. Yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. And just being able to speak to people and see their faces lit up when you give their coffee or when you be nice to them. And that's amazing. Oh. So you see and that in their faces when you're handing that to them, eh, Nicole? Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I I wanted to ask you how, like, when you started, because this is only three months old, the location in Toronto, Nicole, um, when did you start working? And was it difficult for you in the beginning? Or was this something that you always wanted to do, you know, have a customer service and talk to people and be around people? Well, I would say um, when I first started here, I was a little bit nervous, but um, I found myself liking the job and wanting to do it. I never thought I would be in a cafe, but I'm loving it. And it's very ha I'm very happy to have so many lovely people in the cafe. Where did and you hear about the job opening, Nicole? Like when you first, how did you first hear about it? I first heard about it with my teacher. 
she uh, heard it from uh, one of the students uh, parents and she said it would be good for me so she asked me if I wanted to go is this your first apply. is this your first job Nicole yes oh that's fantastic and how is that yeah. feeling paychecks that's feeling good yeah. it makes me feel responsible and that I could do things yeah I know some people say, hey, it's nice just to have somewhere to go each day, you know, get up uh, uh, that thing to go and do that's mine, that brings me back something. But like you said, Nicole, the smiles, the people you, you like serving. Um, I'm kind of curious, Caitlin, when it comes to doing interviews, sitting down with people and kind of figuring out what they're looking for, their interest in the work, and maybe, you know, what they can do and what their, their aspirations are. We know, uh, as, as disabled people um, in our society, and, and how, um, how hard it is just to get a darn interview, that we may not have our skills up enough, whether it comes to applying for the job or sitting through interviews and wondering and the nervousness and everything like that. What kinds of things have you run into and, and how do you guys navigate that as, as you've learned, oh boy, <laughs> you know, people are nervous or people having whatever the things are. And I think that's safe to say everybody is when they go for a job interview. Yeah, but I think sometimes those of us with disabilities, we are disadvantaged by the fact that we don't generally have as many as maybe the next person might? That's a good question. Um, we we did our best to prepare for that. Um, we allowed for a lot of time because we knew people were going to be nervous. We knew that people might not show up on time because of navigation issues. Um, we did our best to make it an accessible space, uh, but people get lost all the time. Um, I do too. So we, we made sure that we kept our questions um, concise and then allowed for extra time. Um, and then we also made sure that we had different ways of asking those questions, breaking them down if necessary, ask them in a different way another time if they were misunderstood. Um, and we really tried to connect with the person who was sitting in front of us um, and make them feel like this wasn't a test, that we really wanted to understand where they were coming from and what they were looking for, what they were looking to get out of a job with us. Um, because that's part of our program is that right. we are hoping to help people develop their their goals or even identify their goals for what happens next, right? Nobody who comes to work at Little E stays forever um, as much as they would like to and as much as we'd love to have them. Um, the goal is to, to move them along to more permanent employment somewhere else. And so asking that question in the, in the interview um, was really important um, and a large part of our hiring process uh, so that we understood at least the path that 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 person had hoped to be on, even if it changes along the way. And Nicole, how was that for you? Went going for your job interview and like what Caitlin's telling us um, and for your future? It was a little nerve wracking, I'm not gonna lie, but um, I found that they were so kind and um, like just knowing that they were there and they didn't want to do it so fast and went slow and very good for 
for me to uh, say things. And it was so well organized, I would say. Mm. How important is it, Caitlin, for um, partnerships, for collaboration? You know, this is, of course, the entrepreneurship side of it is um, a person with a dream, a person with a family member who, you know, wanted to kick off something that would be meaningful and beneficial for uh, like a population of people with disabilities, and it's it's so incredible. But also, we know that for something to be sustainable, we've got to. And you mentioned like the turnover and all these other things. We've got to partner up with people, and we have to um, make sure that our our formulas are working. That thing that people are dedicated. You know, are we doing things right? The feedback and all of these other things. So, how do you feel about this aspect of partnerships and collaboration? Um, the partnership and collaboration is the hardest part, I think, of the mission, um, as well as the most essential. Um, the work that we do, if we could do it forever, like I said, we would. Um, mm -hmm. But part of the mission is that we're changing minds in our community, um, that we're not annexing anybody to you know, the, the back room or behind the scenes, that this is a customer facing um, job. And so proving to other companies and other individuals, other businesses that this job is one that can be done by the people who work here is, is part of the mission. And then we work, uh, we meet with other uh, uh, corporations and businesses in the meantime, while we're training everybody to see uh, who would be interested in being a partner. There are a few who are over the moon about it and it's so wonderful to see, mm -hmm. um, but it's a lot of work to sort of formalize those things, like you said, and, and receive the right feedback. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a big part of the job <laughs> for is, sure. Yeah. Uh, and it'll happen kind of behind the scenes for us as managers. And I'm assuming it's very different for you, like for the team at Lily Coffee Cafe um, versus, you know, as you said, corporate or chains that do uh, have initiatives that are more like programs and plans and funding and all these other things to try to um, rope in the the work aspect that way, right? And the employment aspect that way. It's very different and it's more independently done where you guys have to go out and outreach is a big part of it. But um, we'd love to, well, having, yeah, go ahead. Having a storefront helps with that, yeah, right? That, yeah. we're, that we're open and people invisible. Um, so, and people can come in and get their coffee. A lot of people walk in and don't know what they're walking into. And then they, you know, as they wait for their latte, they read our mission statement. We've got a huge mm. mission statement up on the wall and they go, oh, oh, okay. I understand where I am now. This is really cool. Um, so be, having a storefront definitely helps. That's that. fantastic. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much, Caitlin, Nicole. We really appreciate the conversation with you both and all the best. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Take care. For having us.
Thank Bye. you. Bye. We were speaking with Caitlin Rutherford, general manager at Lily Coffee Cafe in Toronto, as well as Nicole Meniz, who is an employee at the Toronto location. You can check out the Lily Coffee, Coffee Cafe, which is the inclusive cafe offering meaningful employment to people with cognitive disabilities. Coming up in the next hour of Kelly and Ramia, we have Bryce Parker joining us for our collections and hobbies segment. He's got some interesting uh, sports jerseys that he's going to tell us about. wonder where they come from. Also, we're learning about the Common Thread Community Chorus Choir, which sings for social justice. But up next, we got a community report with Mark Wortman. He's in Dubai, and he's going to talk about the United Nations Climate Change Conference, which he's currently at. We'll be back to talk to him about that. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv. We are launching hour two of the show. And of course, if you're listening to podcasts, you can get the segments of the podcast all separated and cleaned up nice and easy for you to listen at uh, two speed or whatever it is that you listen to podcasts to now. And then you can share as well. Kelly and Ramia, that's Kelly McDonald and Ramia Amuthan here with you. I don't know how many people think you're an oddball when you say that. What are you Who talking does about? That? Why Everybody would people does that? do that? Do you know how many podcasts we're all listening to? Come on, Kelly. No one's listening at normal Do you speed honestly anymore. believe that there's a huge number of people that do I'd that? I'd like to call a friend, Michael Babcock. No, no, no. What's one? I'm talking. There's a how much? How many people are on this planet? Six billion. Yeah, and they're Speak all to a billion listening and to let podcast. me know. You know what? If yeah. they're not doing it yet, is because they haven't learned how. You good haven't it is. gone around and told them. Get on the road and tell them. <laughs> which means like, they're not like listening this to this podcast. Do, do which like is a our problem. next guest, who's on the road, <laughs> spreading good word of speeding up your podcast, folks. We visit with our community reporters Monday, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays on the show. Somebody's trying to speed me up now. See if I can go real fast and tell you. But our community <laughs> reporters join us, and we always love what they have to say. And Today, Mark Workman is with us and usually reporting in on stuff from the Edmonton area. But today we got a real treat. He's staying up late to speak to us because today he's in Dubai at the United Nations Climate Change Conference, which we have heard a lot about. Our CBC has been talking a lot about it. Us over here at AMI have been covering it. Mark, welcome back to the show. And usually we like to ask you, where the heck are you? Or where you been, Mark? Today it's got to be Mark. We're checking in. Where are you? You're in Dubai, and you've got a lot going on there. First of all, let's start with when the heck did you arrive? Let's get. Let's begin there. Well, before that, I have to admit, double speed all the time. Every yes, time. thank <laughs> you. There's, so there's there is three of you. Easy. There's one. three all together now that we've mentioned. <laughs> Ryan, who has yeah, been converted, no, am, so there's that as well. Absolutely. It's the only way. I am uh, in Dubai, as you mentioned, in a country called the United Arab Emirates, attending what's commonly called COP28. I got here quite a while ago, back on November 30th, so it's been a couple of weeks. But before that, I was actually in Thailand, so it's been almost three weeks on the road. I look forward to uh, coming home tomorrow. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Okay, well, we'll get into more of the details of what's going on there, especially how it impacts the disability world. But can you tell us a little bit about Dubai and uh, what the town has been like, if you've been able to get out and see? I'm not, I think you've been there before. Um, fill us in on those kind of details that all of us sit back. Like, Sounds cool. Oh, not so cool. Yeah, this was my first time. So it's been 
quite an interesting experience. Um, a lot of people, uh, this it's not so much affecting me, but a lot of people talk about how beautiful it is. So it's very futuristic looking. There's a lot of money in this uh, country, largely due to um, having a lot of oil, which is in high demand. Um, so it's really, I think, a beautiful city for visually speaking. Um, very uh, different kind of culture, though. It's predominantly, of course, Muslim city. So that means that you can regularly hear the call to prayer when you're out and about. It means that uh, you don't, uh, you're not able to have a, a glass of beer or wine with your dinner. Typically, I mean, in the hotels, it's a little different. They understand that a lot of people would be visiting from other countries in hotels, but if you're kind of out in the city, uh, you won't find that. Uh, even things like having a, a train car in the metro that's specifically right. for women only, right? Things like that are uh, show you that you're in a very different uh, culture, a very different country. Mm. Wow, I was going to ask you about the transit if you've had that opportunity to be out because they yeah, there's some great. interesting things in the way the transit works too. Yeah, yeah, um, we we did take the metro just to experience it, kind of test out the accessibility. Uh, really, really impressed with it. It was very clean. Um, the the announcements were great. They're in English and Arabic, uh, so really, really nice, uh, fast, speedy metro train. Awesome. Okay. All right, so yeah. we've all been hearing different stories about um, COP28, COP28, and maybe some mixed feelings. So tell us about the disability side of things first, um, because we want to know what's been going on there and uh, if you have any particular ideas or feelings or perspectives or just information on people with disabilities around this conference. Yeah, it's hard to know with certainty exactly how many people are here from the disability community. Some people would have traveled on their own and may not have connected with the sort of larger disability group. But the group that I've been involved with and meeting with on a kind of a daily basis even is around 50 people that have uh, decided to come, which is the largest presence of the disability community ever at one of these uh, climate change events. Um, so it's been great to see that sort of engagement. Um, and you can tell there have been attempts to make things more accessible and inclusive for people with disabilities, uh, right? So there are some tactile markings and things like that if you're blind. Um, so there are some, uh, there are buggies as well for those who have some mobility challenges, but a lot of work still to do. Uh, if you're a sign language user, for example, it was very hit and miss and, and very rare that you would see sign language at an event. It was sort of just if uh, maybe an event organizer had a particular concern for making that event more accessible, then they might have sign language, but a lot of them, uh, a lot of them did not. And then for those who did have mobility challenges, it's a massive event. I mean, there are roughly 100,000 people that attend this thing. So it's it, it can take 25 minutes to walk from one event, like one, oh, uh, yeah. one room to another in this place. So, mm. so, so that was a bit of a challenge. Um, so, so still more work to do, but we did see some, some positive steps towards accessibility, which is something that we're really happy about. Mark, when you were mm -hmm. prepping to go uh, and all of the, I guess, I don't know, sign up is the right way of saying it, but when you were prepping to go, were there conversations, questions around what you would need for accommodations as a person with a disability? In the registration, we were able to uh, provide some of that information. And for example, for us, we had a limit of two representatives that we could take from our organization. But we 
need uh, sighted guides often to help in these situations. Right. I mean, for uh, someone who's totally blind to navigate a brand new, massive uh, event space like this is, is very challenging. So uh, to do it efficiently, you really want to have some support. And so we were able to say, uh, you know, we need, uh, we'd like to request additional badges so that others can attend to support us. And that was, that was no problem. So, so that was a nice, uh, a nice accommodation, you could call it. Mm. Okay. So we're visiting with Mark Workman, our community reporter, who's in Dubai. Um, can you talk, despite some of the challenges, getting around different things like that, your feeling is that for sure, we, the disability committee, should be present there um, and being able to sit at the table, hear these conversations. I'm curious as to some of the reasons why, and I wonder right off the bat, media. Um, have you known of any media addressing, asking questions of some mm. of the others, the 50 that you mentioned that uh, have disabilities that are there? I mean, the main reason is just because as people with disabilities, as people on this planet, we're going to be affected by climate change and, and thus we're going to be impacted by the policies that come into place to deal with uh, the impact of climate change. So, so we really want to be at the table to make sure that our circumstances are taken into consideration when policies are being developed. Uh, that, that's, I think, the main reason to be here. For Regarding media, we definitely ourselves had some conversations with media, uh, and one of the journalists said that she'd been to a number of these uh, COP events, and this was the largest disability group that she had seen. So we became more visible, which is great as well, uh, to, yeah. to just show people that we are here, we care about these issues, and we're willing to take the time out of our lives to attend these events and make sure that our issues are being taken into consideration. We also, though, had to do a lot of asking questions ourselves. So mm. when we attended events, um, and there's, and unfortunately, there wasn't a ton of inclusion of people with disabilities in the events themselves, right, as panelists. Right. But yeah. when there was an opportunity to ask a question at the end, you can bet that those those 50 or so people that they were often putting their hands up, the first to put their hands up and asking questions. And it really did force the people on the stage to think about uh, things that they may not have thought about. Yeah, I mean, it's a snapshot of reality, right? Like this is life with a disability. You're seeing it firsthand for the people who've showed up um, and and representing disability in that way, or at least like the accommodation side of things. So obviously that's a, a huge point. Um, you mentioned climate change policies. So I think it would be helpful to understand the change uh, or the understanding of some of these issues better. So what are the topics that were being discussed that people with disabilities are affected by. Can you help us understand some of the issues? Definitely. And one is um, a topic that we have actually discussed at a previous uh, community report. And this was related to the wildfires and that happened over the summer. And we talked about the importance of being prepared when natural disasters occur. And of course, with climate change, you're going to see more frequent and more severe natural disasters. And so this is an obvious area where climate change policy response to natural disasters that people with disabilities are really deeply affected. If you're not able to easily evacuate, that's a very dangerous situation. If you're not able to access the emergency shelters, if you're not able to access the early warning systems that tell you when a natural disaster is coming, then you are you know, much more uh, vulnerable. And, and there are some statistics that show that 
you know, people with disabilities are four times more likely to be uh, killed in natural, in these extreme natural disasters than people without disabilities. So that's a really obvious one. It's not the only one, though. There's other topics that we were talking about around adapting our environments for climate change. So we, we may have to think about how we build cities differently, how we build buildings differently. When we put in green spaces, are we making sure that we're building them in ways that are inclusive and accessible, or are we uh, perpetuating sort of the, the exclusion and putting up barriers for people? So how we build our cities, especially, to adapt to climate change is a really important topic mm. that we raised. Yeah. And the last one I'll mention, though, is the term just transition, which you probably heard in the media coverage. So when we say mm -hmm. just transition, we're talking about how we're going to need to um, transition away from fossil fuel-based jobs into greener jobs. And of course, we know that people with disabilities are often excluded from the employment sector, right? We're either higher, we're higher rates of unemployment, higher rates of underemployment. And so when we're talking about creating a sort of a new economy, a new greener economy, are we thinking about how we're going to include people with disabilities in those jobs so that we don't, again, we don't replicate or we don't uh, continue with the existing inequalities that we have today? You bet. Mark, I got a minute. So super interesting stuff, of course. But what's next? What happens after you leave COP? How do we build on these discussions, everybody that you guys are having over there? I think there's a couple of key areas of work for us to do, you know, as we return to our, our homes after this event. We really want to build on the relationships and the connections that were formed here. So this includes strengthening that disability community that I mentioned that was here, um, you know, maybe formalizing it a little bit more, planning for next year earlier, you know, starting in January, we plan to, to uh, right. start working on things for the following one, uh, but also strengthening those relationships, those connections we made with governments, with civil society organizations, academics and private companies, <clears throat> which we had a lot of opportunities to meet here at COP. And then the last area I would say is really sharing this information, raising awareness, educating the, the disability community a bit more through things like this conversation that we're having, you know, sharing with people that this is an issue that will affect you and that uh, you can do some advocacy on in your in your local uh, community, but we want to be able to provide those those supports, those resources, that information, so that people feel more confident to talk about the issue and to talk about the solutions that will work for them. We're uh, Mark Workman, our former Edmonton uh, community reporter, now known as the Wandering <laughs> Community Reporter. Uh, we will talk to him next month, wherever the heck he might be. Best of the season to you, uh, Mark. This is just beautiful for you to share and give us a perspective. Uh, look forward to our next chat, man. Oh, thanks so much for the opportunity. I always love to, to talk to you guys. Uh, happy holidays, and we'll talk to you again next year. You bet. From Dubai, uh, live with us, Mark Workman uh, joining us and uh, talking a lot about uh, Cobb and what's going on over there and some really fantastic conversations with uh, the disability community well in attendance. We speak to our community reporters Monday, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays here on Kelly and Ramya. Super eye-opening to hear these angles mm. of the conversations around climate change and where the heck are we with the disability perspective. After the break, we're learning about the Common Thread Community Chorus Choir, which sings for social justice and inclusion. Lots to learn about there. Another two guests joining us to talk about this initiative. We'll be right back. Don't go away. There's more great conversation with Kelly and Ramya 
right around the corner. Welcome back and continuing with the fun here on Kelly and Ramia. Kelly McDonald, Ramia Amazon. We're holding down the fort as we usually do Monday to Friday on AMI. So let's continue with the fun, shall we? We love talking arts here on the show and we're squeezing in as much arts and community and initiatives as possible before the end of the year because we got to shout everybody out. And right now, we're shouting out Common Thread Community Chorus. This is a 65-voice choir that sings for social justice and inclusion and to build community, of course. And they're now in their 25th season. Their aim is to make art and music accessible to everyone by removing barriers for singing and performance. And we appreciate that, Kelly and I, of course, being performers and being lovers of the arts. So let's talk about their choir's community or um, unique contribution to the arts with our two guests, choir president Hano Nielsen and member Elizabeth Muller. Elizabeth, we're very familiar with you. Hano, it's nice to meet you. And both of you, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for the opportunity. It's fantastic. Elizabeth, I want to start with you because, of course, we learn new things about you every day. <laughs> so, when uh, did you join the choir? How long have you been around with it? And what made you join? Absolutely. Great question. So I joined the choir in 2016. I wanted a choir where reading music and sight singing wasn't going to be a barrier. I'd auditioned for many choirs and the constant refrain I heard was, we'd love to have you, but it's going to be really difficult if you don't sight sing. Mm. And through a, a mutual friend that I know through uh, Trailblazers Tandem Cycling Club, I uh, discovered a common thread. This person told me about the choir and what they did. So I decided to check them out. What I love about it is for somebody that doesn't read music, they have the option to uh, download rehearsal track recordings. Uh, the choir is structured in such a way and teaches in such a way that it really builds music inclusively. Um, if you want to learn sight singing, you can. But for me, that was a huge draw. The other piece that was a huge draw, and of course, we'll get into this more, is the social justice angle and the inclusivity angle and the accessibility angle, right? So not only do we have our music available, rehearsal tracks online, we've got, you know, the the ability to download your music score, people who need music uh, or words in Braille can get that. So all of those reasons are why I joined the choir. Mm, fantastic. They sound like hey, no, great reasons. Um, yeah. Fantastic reasons. Um, how does Common Threads work to remove those barriers that, you know, Elizabeth's already touched on a few of them um, for performing? What, what kinds of things, even from the earliest days of Common Thread, did you guys recognize had to be brought forward? Yeah, I think uh, I've been with Common Thread uh, for the full 25-year cycle. I wasn't a founder of Common Thread, but I've been there throughout, so I, I know the story. And part of the uh, ethos of Common Thread, the very reason it was uh, created, was a, a bit of a reaction to some of the changes we saw in society in 1998. Those were the days of the Mike Harris government, and uh, mm -hmm. those who remember those days, uh, you know, there was a, a huge change in how services from government were, were rendered, were, were provided. Uh, there was lots of downloading, fragmentation, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, there, were, there was a lot of change happening and not all of it good. So the choir really grew from that social justice uh, conflict or, or, or uh, crisis, if you will. And so it wanted to be inclusive. It wanted to be uh, a bit of a, 
an example to others. So I know the founders built in many things. So Elizabeth's mentioned some of them, and part of it is really making a, a musical situation occur that would be appropriate for non-singers and people who had little experience, maybe just sang in the shower, and they could now come out and join others. Mm. And together in that kind of choral community, voice uh, voice their uh, their thoughts and, and their, their passions around social justice issues. We've had many themes throughout the years, peace, uh, protecting the environment, protecting our precious water, um, you know, things like freedom, the songs of women, love. I mean, we've covered many themes, each one, each year. And and those have been kind of the thread that have uh, been throughout our history. Uh, now, again, music is taught by Isabel Bernaus. She's our, our conductor. We also have Suzanne Mazares, our assistant conductor. They're very adept at being able to, um, you know, uh, teach music or lift up our voices, as we like to say, and uh, bring us to a performance standard. I know... Uh, you know, at the beginning of the year when we start each season, it seems, uh, you know, like it's going to be quite a challenge. But by the end of the year, you know, we have a full concert we can perform uh, to an audience and, and really be effective at that. So their techniques are there. We, we do build in all kinds of things. Like we insist on, on physical access, you know, beyond just the legal standards. We have also work individually with people. I mean, some people come uh, to the choir with very specific needs. Well, we work with them, and to the extent possible, and God knows we're not per perfect, we try to work specifically to eliminate those barriers. And they could be a host of things, uh, from financial barriers to physical barriers uh, to uh, perhaps getting transportation mm. to the choir rehearsals. We try to problem-solve around that. So it's really uh, that kind of act of a accommodation. I'm not sure that's the right word, but we try to meet those needs and then make sure everybody's part of our community. And I think we've been very successful over the years. Well, we've lasted for 25. So you've lasted for 25. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, I think that's a good sign of success. Yeah. yeah, that's a good sign of success. And 65 voices, I mean, that is plenty for a, a full concert, as you said. Um, we want to hear a little bit. So let's hear yeah. a sample of the uh, choir's singing. beautiful i can't only imagine how amazing it sounds in person with the acoustics and all of this stuff i would love to get into the details of the acoustics but i want to <laughs> know more about the actual choirs so tell us about the impact elizabeth i'm i'm curious for you the personal impact of being part of something Absolutely. like this um and what you think it means for the community <clears throat> Yeah, it, the impact is huge for me personally. It's a community, right? It's a it's a coil of support and friendship and singing and being in song. You know, no matter what kind of a day I'm having on a Wednesday, when I step into that auditorium at 58 Cecil Street and I start singing, whatever's happening just goes away. Yes. Um, you know, you're singing for change. Our our logo is our, maybe our our tagline is changing the world one song at a time. Um, the community is a huge aspect for me. I've 
I've made personal friendships and connections in the choir. I've grown professionally as a musician and singer. Um, like I said, I don't sight sing, but my confidence has blossomed um, being able to, to do harder music thanks to the rehearsal tracks. Um, I've been an MC at some of our concerts. So, you know, if, if uh, it's great for that kind of public speaking and, and being able to build that, that skill set. But it's, it's really for me about community and that sense of community and being there for each other. Um, and our music is community, you know, that song common thread, that's our theme song, but it really is um, growing together. So, so personally, that's been a huge imp impact as a musician. Um, and, and I think more to the point, just being able to do something I love in such an inclusive way, we know as people with disabilities, that sometimes our world is not inclusive, mm. and we want to do things and we can't darn it, because it just isn't going to work. Or we want to, <laughs> but if the barriers are just piling up, right. um, but not at common thread, not at common thread, that's never been my experience. Hey, now tell us how other groups, other artists um, look at Common Thread and just see what you guys are doing and how does that affect when it comes to the arts community? Mm. One, one of the things we really try to do uh, each year and with, is also feature a guest artist at our May concerts. Actually, at the end of this May, last Saturday in May uh, in 2024, we will finish the 25th year with our big finale concert. Well, throughout our 25 years of doing that, we've worked with uh, social justice folk artists who have added their uh, their uh, set of music uh, to to our concert to to enrich it. But they also work with us, so we do some songs together. And I think that adds often they're, they're not used to singing with a choir of any kind, never mind a community choir. So that brings uh, another you know dimension to their careers. But we benefit from that as well because we you know we can create those alliances with uh, artists in the folk community. Uh, also, what we do is uh, during our musical retreats, twice a year, we all get together in a, in a space and spend a full day learning songs and, and also doing social things together as a group. The social part's very important. We also have uh, often uh, professionals, people who come in to help with vocal training that benefits everyone in the choir. My right? goodness. Uh, so so you're you're adding kind of these values or these these additional things uh to to the process as well it doesn't necessarily well, i mean i guess it shows in the performance and bringing that mm -hmm. level up to a good performance level but it benefits everyone and and i mean everyone in the choir uh, that's the beauty of it we talked about benefits and 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 uh community well, everyone in the choir benefits either by what they can bring to the choir, like some people do have musical skills or have had past experiences, and some have none. It's the exchange of those two uh, aspects, those two needs, or those two assets that, that really binds us together and makes this a very special place. It sounds fantastic. As you said, like a lot of us, we're just going to come uh, to the concerts. We're going to, you know, experience the beautiful singing and the music. But all of this other stuff that goes on in the background, in the experiential side for the members sounds absolutely uh, incredible. And I want to ask, Elizabeth, do you want to say uh, anything about the holidays and anything that's coming up for people to check out or what you're looking forward to around Common Thread? Yeah, no, absolutely. So 
we had a, a wonderful concert that just finished um, December 2nd, but fear not, like Hino said, last Saturday in May, we have a, a wonderful concert. It's our 25th. You won't want to miss it. Um, there's also, uh, check our website. There's a concert in, in March with a couple of other choirs. And of course, you know, certainly um, if you want to join us, connect with us um, on our website, commonthreadchorus.ca. Uh, um, but I think, you know, one thing I, I will say is, uh, you know, again, just going back to the accessibility, when we think about accessibility at Common Thread, it's more than just physical access. Like Hano said, it could be financial, it could be helping people with musical training, it could be uh, a buddy system so that you can participate in choir. Um, you know, for those of us who have sight loss, getting on and off risers and stages can be challenging. So those those buddy systems can really help. Um, so I think all of that, it really it really is a family. It's a family um, that, that creates song together and, and is in song together. This is so exciting. It sounds like such a warm place to be, guys. Thank you so much for um, coming on here, and I'm glad we shouted you out. All the Thanks best for, for the holidays. Us. Have fun. Fantastic. We really appreciate AMI doing this for us. Yeah, of course. Hopefully more people will come out, and then um, we can catch back up with you in the next year. That would be wonderful. Take care. Thank you. We were speaking with uh, Common Thread Choir President Hayno Nielsen, as well as member Elizabeth Muller, who you can also check out on Now with Dave Brown. She's there very often. You can check out commonthreadchorus.ca for more information to get involved and to find out more about what's coming up for them. And this is, of course, an inclusive quiet uh, choir for people with disabilities. After the break, we have collections and hobbies coming up with Bryce Parker. He's got a collection of jerseys. And here's more of Common Thread Chorus Choir as we go to break. It's fun, insightful, and inclusive. Kelly and Ramya return in a minute. a very fun Tuesday show. We love having things we can look forward to each day of the week here on Kelly and Remia. So, you know, you can follow our contributors along with us. And we know the ones that show up on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays. And then we have these monthly rotations of segments that we also look forward to, Kels. Indeed. Uh, and some of those we are kind of put together ourselves. Some of Sports are our glorious contributors that bring things to the table. Speaking of bringing things to the table, or show and tell, as I used to love it in, in kindergarten until I had to bring things that I ended up forgetting and losing there. Uh, folks, let's talk about our collections and hobby segment here. And this is really where we get into the sentiments that people have. We explore what things by them, telling us about them, that they collect, and the stories and sentiments that are behind all those kinds of collections that people have out there. Today, we welcome Bryce Parker, registered massage therapist, goalball player for the Canadian men's national team, and an avid jersey collector. He's going to bring them to the table, so he'll give us some description, some discussion. Bryce, welcome to the program, man. Thank you for having me. Okay. So right off the top, of course, those other sports fans out there who like to pick up this or that are saying, okay, jerseys, all right, I collect those. How do you get them? There's so many things people want to know about them. But let's kind of get this a little more precise. What kind of jerseys do you collect? Uh, I'll 
will collect any kind of famous kind of sports jerseys, like primarily for any sports jerseys that go for NFL, NHL, NBA. I uh, got a couple of uh, World Cup jerseys as well that I've included. And uh, it just kind of any famous athletes that have inspired people. And when did you start this collection? I started about six years ago when I was 19. Is that because okay. that's when you started getting the money to be able to afford the jerseys? Yeah, a little bit of that. Uh, I, I decided to grow up a little bit at that time. Uh, <laughs> but I also <laughs> I felt like I needed something to kind of give me some inspiration on my own sports. So mm. Interesting. Um, I think what interests me when people talk about this is how the heck do you first, first of all, first start? Not not so much, you know, what made you say, but the opportunity. Who, how, the signed one, where did you go? Did you plan to, or did it just kind of fall into your hands? Uh, someone, you know, hey, look what I got, huh? Merry Christmas, whatever it might be. And then how do you proceed from there to get more uh, of these? Um, before we get kind of discussing, t tell us a little bit about that. How have you been able to purloin some of these? So basically got my first jersey back in uh, 2017 there. It uh, was a Leafs jersey. Um, I'm imagining oh, sorry about your the... luck. Wow. <laughs> I'm imagining all the comments coming in on that one, but... Uh... <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> sorry? I couldn't resist. It's, it's the kind of um, when everybody gets after me about getting the, a Jake Muzzin uh, jersey and, and being a Montreal Canadiens semi-fan. So anyway, uh, go ahead, though. Let's, let's hear this. This is great. Yeah, so basically that was my very first jersey. It was a 34 Austin Matthews jersey. Ooh, um, nice. That kind of carried on with just seeing what, I, what could be possible of different sports kind of for different athletes that could uh, provide an outline for me kind of as inspiration. And uh, basically I saw the opportunity of how cool the one Jersey was. And I wanted to see how other jerseys were kind of designed and uh, the tech texture kind of material of each one of them yes. and see what, uh, what athletes actually play in. Okay, okay cool. so before she before she gets in with these yeah, questions, questions that are kind of like you know interesting yeah, obscure get, let's get, get to the, the important ones. Mm -hmm. so I'm curious on that level based on again um did your vision have anything to do with that when I say that you talk about the texture you talk about seeing them up close I remember I used to try real hard to look at the TV what what what's that logo like what's it and there was nothing like the first time I touched a legit jersey and said Oh, was my concept there or or what have you? How different is one from another? We have so many different uh, jerseys now, especially that teams wear at any given away home, this particular, you know, you can get a lot of them when they're special events. So uh, of these things, what kind of made you so curious um, about them and the durability and so on of them? Uh, it was more just kind of like I already knew the logos of each team and everything like that from the background of different sports. I do have a little bit of vision to see that. But once I got my hands kind of on the jerseys, I loved seeing the different kind of designs that came out of them. And as you said, they're kind of always expanding with mm. different with different designs, like such as the home and away and year to year they come up with new designs. So I'm always interested to see uh, how they can go forward with it. So how do you get the information, Bryce? Like, do you research the heck out of what 
jersey you're going to get, how it's going to feel, what it actually means, price points, talk about it, descriptions, before you get your hands on them and, and or, like, make the transaction? Or do you wing it, it gets to you, and then you're like, oh, okay, this is cool? Yeah, basically, I started out with just kind of seeing what jerseys were, or what players interested me and that I know I kind of look up to. And then after that, it expanded and... Uh, about maybe four years ago now, I made kind of a master list of every kind of jersey from every different kind of sports team oh. I would like to kind of fire eventually. Oh, this is okay, serious. So, so how many do you own right now? And that's more fandom, that list, right? That list is made up more of a special interest in fandom. Yeah, interest in fandom or just uh, kind of greats of the past. Like I got a Bobby Orr jersey. I got a... Uh, Connor McDavid jersey right now. I got a Michael Jordan jersey, uh, Ronaldo. We got kind of all of the different famous guys. So it's more about the jerseys than about the sports. And um, how many do you own right now? Uh, right now we're sitting at 66. Okay, wow, wow that is way more Good than I assumed. heavens, man. Um, how, where do you go? Where do you go to find the jerseys? Anywhere online. Like, I'll look at the different kind of... Uh, specialty kind of sports uh, websites like the NHL.com or something like that, or I'll just kind of go on auction sites that I know will sell uh, jerseys wherever I can kind of get a deal or just get an opportunity to get them. And how far do you go with the bidding? How competitive does it get for you? Uh, it, it gets pretty competitive. I try to uh, hold myself back a little bit before I get kicked out of the house for over-wasting my <laughs> <laughs> okay, then you got to give us numbers. Like, what's the most you've spent on a jersey? Oh, um, I'm probably going to say around 400 I don't know okay. what that means. Kels, is that expensive okay. for a jersey? Well, not necessarily. Not with what you can do out there. I'm sure Bryce will tell you a little bit about what he has seen and how high these bidding, the bids that have, the auctions that have forced him out. I'm curious on the trust level, on when you see yeah. something, when you, have you ever especially starting out, did you get taken? Did somebody not follow through or did you, did you, have you fallen a victim of some forgery, any weird thing like that? And how far away yeah, you had to chase have you down. ordered one? I've been very fortunate to not have any too many problems. I've had one situation where the uh, where it was kind of like a scam website. It wasn't actually an auction oh, no. site. And I was ordering a, uh, basketball jerseys, so thankfully I didn't spend too much money on it. It was kind of like a cheap deal kind of thing, but uh, that's really the only situation, thankfully. That's the thing, wow. right? Because it's not even like you're deep diving into one sport or keeping an eye on one player. You're legit just getting jerseys of all kinds from everywhere, so I'm assuming you could really get roped into things that are not pleasant, but you never mm -hmm. had to like send anything back. No, no, no. Everything's been, I, I make sure it's prime condition. I make sure I know about the athlete that I'm buying and everything like that. I make sure I look up different copies of the jerseys so that it, it actually looks like an exact replica. Uh-huh. So, so do you have, I know you said you had the list you started out with of what you would like to get, how come and what. As time goes on and your knowledge and the things you fall over, looking online has increased and you're, you, is there now this updated list of things you think you could get that you could afford that, you know, you obviously got to save to get, but that true realistic wish list, but also that 
the sky's the limit pie in the sky list of something that in yeah. the years to come, if you could get your hands on, spend whatever amount of money you, you, you would have to to get it that you would want. Is there that that real, real short? How big is yeah, it? Yeah, the real short master list. I'm always updating it because there's always right. new prospects in the sports. So you kind of have to always keep on top of it to know what athletes are there, what athletes are gone. So I'm kind of keeping always an eye on it. But I would say there might be a few jerseys I have an eye on. Uh, whether I desperately need them uh, is probably not the case, but I'm always kind of willing to keep my out for them in case I get the opportunity for it. How many hours a week do you would you say you spend on just like keeping tabs on this hobby slash collection? Uh, it's probably a lot less than people think. It's probably like maybe one or two hours a week. It's not bad because it's an expensive hobby. It it doesn't mm -hmm. take up too much time. <laughs> you also have to yeah, your bank account you has to build up. But is there <laughs> groups that you is there like online groups that you'd go in and ever talk, or is this more of an isolated kind of hobby that people? Because I mean, obviously, you don't want to be scooped on anything. But is there just talking and showing off stuff kind of groups where you go and people show their memorabilia? Yeah, there's different uh, Facebook groups. There's different markets where basically you post your jersey and if you want to kind of trade it or if you want to uh, sell it or if you just want to kind of show it off, then there's those different ways you can do it so kind of for people to admire but also have the same hobby. Mm -hmm. Bryce, where do you keep the jerseys? There's 66 jerseys you said you've had, uh, you have so far. How do they live in your home? How do they? And how? It, what's what's the tips for storing them? Like, do you have a special care you that you do? You put them on, or, also. He, oh god! To take Instagram not. pictures? He would not. I don't know. <laughs> I do like to uh, have a little moment here and there and put I them knew on. It. Just kind of. I'm pulling these headsets off. I don't want to hear this. Let me get these headsets off. <laughs> you can't sell those to <laughs> Kelly anymore. Not mint. Oh, okay, god. carry on. Yeah, they're, uh, but they're primarily actually just uh, on a, a little rack that I have kind of out in the open there so that I can admire them at any time. And it gets Leave them so out to the elements? <gasps> to the flies, to everything that goes by, lands on them. And bleh. But, that's, oh, but, no. but Bryce, you, you know, the thing, though, makes sense because Bryce, as a blind person, we touch them. So forget that. The reason you're, you're getting yeah. them Strike is one. to enjoy them. And that is, you know, any other collectors would say, <gasps> They'd really pull the headsets off if they heard you touch them. Well, I'd rather have them out and where I can enjoy, enjoy them all them. the time. And That's right. Just, uh, hidden away where I'll never see them and kind of forget about them. Like this hobby gets so realistic that I have all of them exactly numberized and everything. Mm. Mm. But you said a, a rack? Yeah. That's pretty much it? Okay. But you said you might yeah, also I, get kicked out of the house, so they're out in the open I, for everyone to I, see. I, I get a true man cave going. <laughs> Not I love yet. It. Wow. I, I just think it's great because I, I think what you said about the texture, the feeling, because I, I know exactly what you mean. And a lot of people, as I said, would, oh, no, no, they're only meant to be looked at. Well, you're looking at them at the way we like and would enjoy them the most. But look at them, to hold it up, to stand back, but also to feel because they are so unique. Um, is there any particular one right now that you would say you're fixating on and trying to get a hold of? Uh, I'm still looking at getting a possible Kobe Bryant jersey. Uh, I've had my eye out for many, many years on a Gordie Howe jersey. I like the old classics as well as mm -hmm. kind of new coming up on the block. So I would like a Connor Bedard jersey or 
anything around those kind of fields. You know, would how, you um, um, go after a Bedard one in, from junior, or are you more looking for Chicago is like a jersey from this year from his premier season? Uh, I would like either one, but I'd probably primarily go with the Canada jersey just because that's kind of first when I started really enjoying his hockey games. So. Yes, yes. So, Bryce, you know how when you add things to your Amazon cart, there's always like this, and you can, people who usually buy this also buy dot, dot, dot. And I'm wondering if your collection has expanded from jerseys to memorabilia, sports memorabilia in general, because you've gotten... Um, these prompts of hey might as well get this while i'm at it buy these hockey sticks they're broken by <laughs> whoever <laughs> no i don't really have too much uh interest in any of that I, uh, a couple of hats but it's all just about the jerseys all right oh well i got a guy for you to hook up with i, I gotta talk to him send him a message because yeah, kelly is gonna uh, make his way guy... to your neighborhood um, maybe well, I, I, I'm still trying to trying to pedal off the one eye, but this guy might have a, be oh. a real good resource for some of the things. Was that what it was? I thought the intention uh, was you wanted one of his. Oh, jerseys. oh yeah, no, I just I just want to touch some of them, right? Just to see. Oh, look at the feel of that. But uh, it's really phenomenal when you run into people and listen to them, and they know what they're talking about. Like Bryce is discussing here, I I think that's an incredible thing of knowledge. But it's always wonderful to hear people's passion. Thanks a lot, Bryce. Thanks. Bryce Parker joining us to talk about his jerseys, man. Some really cool stuff. 69? 66? Or 64? 69. 66. Oh, come on. What kind of hosts are we? For heaven's sakes, he just told us twice. It's 66. And we even quoted him already. 66? Mm -hmm. That's just tremendous. Um, we talk collections and hobbies once a month right here on the program. And uh, Bryce Parker joining us to talk about his jerseys and so many and such a variety of them. N notice, Rum? Didn't even get into what's your favorite sport, who's your favorite team, yeah. none of that, yeah. all jersey talk all the time. We've actually had a few sports collections being featured this year, so I really don't want to hear anything more about my lack of sports interest on the show. Autographs. The, I procured these, I take all credit. These. Yeah, I understand that. <laughs> That's like me coming up with all these closing moments with animals. I know. No, no, no. Uh. Don't you mean quizzes on the show? Anyway. We're going to take a break and come back to wrap the show with you. We do have a closing moment. It's one of these strange holidays again that I like. And we're going to tell you what's coming up on Now with Dave Brown tomorrow morning. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more of Kelly and Ramya after this short break. just wrapping up the show here with you a couple more moments here to go and then we will pop up on your favorite podcast platform for you to check out search for kelly and Romeo, and we've got daily feeds of the show and daily repeats as well both on ami audio and ami tv kels we want to know what's coming up on now with dave brown because that is the morning show weekdays from 9 to 11 a.m eastern on ami tv and available on podcast but uh, what's coming up on wednesday morning well, a good friend of our program, certified financial planner Ryan Chin, will be giving people an overview of what to know about setting up a registered disability savings plan. Kevin Shaw, another good friend of ours, will be on the show soon. 
real soon, we'll be talking about the implications about the layoffs at Spotify. And Tom Jackson provides uh, details about the Huron um, Carol on the Aboriginal People's Channel, television network, excuse me. Uh, so they, they've got a lot of great conversations, great guests on the show, filling in on so many things. Now at Day Brown, 9 a.m. in the morning on AMI-tv. Fantastic. Thank you. And um, for the closing moment, I have a, another one of these strange and unofficial, but strange holidays. And I feel like this is going to be the least popular or the least well-received one yet. And it's because the name will tell you it all. It's called Squirrel Appreciation Day. Hands up if you appreciate squirrels. No? Okay. So January 21st is Can't see when... any. Can't see any <laughs> Can't hands. Can't hear any either. Might be the vision impairment, though. <laughs> Listen, it's on January 21st, if you feel like appreciating your squirrels at least once a year, because the other 364 days of the year you're not feeling like it, you can do so. This squirrel-themed date was the brainchild of Christina um, Hargrove, or sorry, Christy Hargrove, and she is a wildlife rehabilitator from North Carolina who's affiliated with the North Carolina Nature Center. So she's got a good intention. Uh, Hargrove invested or invented Squirrel Appreciation Day in 2001 to celebrate squirrels and educate people about the species. Hey, maybe if we knew them better, we wouldn't be as mad when they eat all their stuff in the garden. You can celebrate the occasion yourself by putting out food for squirrels or just letting them have at it in your gardens, reading about the animal, or observing them in person. Now, of course, squirrels are super cute, and they have adorable little habits, like hiding away things and burrowing their snacks for later on, and they're very clever. Um, but I think what sticks with me the most, obviously, Kells, is hearing Danielle McLaughlin and Susan Kearney, our gardener on Fridays, go off about squirrels eating everything, all their hard work, um, hard-worked crops <laughs> in their gardens. And so that's why I thought this would be really fun to bring up. I also think the thing with squirrels is they're not afraid of you. They Aren't they? will make sure... No, no. They'll run up the tree once they have what they want. They'll zip up the tree and say, hey, you can't get me, Danielle. Well, what are you going to do, Susan? Yeah. But the fact is, you could sit there, hear them, and say, get out of here. You make a step, and they'll figure out yeah, do I have time to get this before you get oh, to yeah, me? Oh, they're cunning. And as soon as you go inside and that, because you won't stay out here all day, I'll be back. I'll get it later. Oh, yeah, you go and take it inside there. I'll chew through the wood and get in there. There's different things that squirrels, yeah. they have the knowledge in the head to do. Like, I mean, they, come on. Like, they're not even great with their buddies. You know, if a buddy has, oh, I got all these nuts. Look at that. I found all the, hey! <laughs> you know, you, somebody has stolen. They take them off each other. They <laughs> raid they, each other. They won't face off with you, though. They're not going to, like, when you say they're not scared of you, I think of, you know, having a face off with the squirrel, and they're not There's really no, like that. But they'll they don't, run. But they don't really have to, but they're still oh, going to yeah. invade they're where you were. They're you you could have been sitting on a chair, get up to go away. That guy, you come back, he's sitting there going, yeah. That's just because they're fast. You know, they are not scared or worried about you. They love <laughs> yeah. the fact that because they want what you have. Uh -huh. Those little turkeys, and they know I have sharp teeth still. Want to try me? But now your dog, maybe. they're cuter. Um, I don't know if this is going to be controversial, but at least they're cuter than raccoons. They're smaller. They're more funny, I think, whereas raccoons. I always thought they were funny. Yeah, they are funny. Uh, but raccoons, on the other hand, will 
face off with you, and I'm really not about that life. I prefer the squirrel. Coming up tomorrow and on Kelly and Remya, if I can get all my words together, the Golden Globe nominations for the year are out, and we're going to cover the top TV categories with the TV guy himself, Greg David. And join us for another travel description talk with audio describer J.J. Hunt, where he takes us to explore the festivities and fun around Morocco. Catch you back tomorrow. Okay, here's your laugh of the day. But I wonder how many of you will honestly admit to yourself, hey, that's me too. I was that kid that at Christmas time when I unwrapped gifts, I was not a tear into the gift person. There's no way. In my head, somehow, this paper, beautiful paper that smelled so great, and when I could see a bit more, I could get an idea of what the designs were, the Christmas feel. I would not want to tear it. I would work hard to figure out where to slip my fingers in to pop that tape so that my mom could reuse the paper. It was a little skill. I loved just undoing it and leaving that paper as close to intact as possible. Now, I didn't realize, you know, really, you're not going to have a little frayed in or ripped anyway. Maybe it's just one little air, but you're not going to reuse that. Or are you? So as a kid, of course, because Santa did all the wrapping, I didn't know. I mean... I just figured when I got a gift from any family member outside of Santa's gift, they probably wouldn't reuse it, as that would just be tacky. But when I was that little kid, and before that realization happened, oh yeah, it was all about preserve. Even at school, I'd take the time while all these kids were doing the little gift exchange and ripping into their packages, I'd be pop, pop, and pulling the prize out so carefully so that I would be economizing. Somebody, the teacher, could take that paper and reuse it. And then they'd come along, <laughs> put all your paper here, guys, <laughs> crumple it all up, and all was for naught. But do you think I learned my lesson? Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor. No.